Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm Blue, dabba dee dabba da. And I am not, as I am not a dead body. <laughs> or sad. <laughs> no, I decided to go dark. I went with the cadaverous answer. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm good. Um, how about yourself? Not bad at all. Thank you very much. Looking forward to getting stuck into another clash, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a good one, this one. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, so my choice... So just a reminder to everyone, we are still in our electro season and the clash we are about to go through this week, I'm going to take us through Depeche Mode's debut album, Speak and Spell. And next week, Kev, what are you going through? I will be going through Upstairs at Eric's, the debut album from Yazoo. And the reason for that clash is it's the Vince Clark Derby. (laughs) I mean, we could have had a Vince Clark three-way if we wanted to, but um, that's a very different thing. A very, very different thing, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Vince Clark was one of the founding members of Depeche Mode, and when he left Depeche Mode, he went on to form Yazoo with Alison Moyet, and that's the connection, really. As I mentioned at the end of last week's show, Vince Clark is one of those people that made synth pop the predominant pop music, really, amongst early 80s Britain. Well, yeah, um, Vince Vince Clark's influence is writ large across the whole of the 80s, really, from the start, because uh, obviously the debut album comes out in 1981, mm-hmm. up until the end of the decade, where he is phenomenally successful still. Yeah, indeed. See, so, I mean, there are some more obvious connections in terms of the record companies and the where they were recorded and stuff, but just because just of Vince Clark and Mute Records, so there's no point going through all that. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Vince Clark derby, and that's why we're doing it beforehand though shall we do some can't get you out of my head i think we should so kevin do you have any shite stuck in your head unfortunately i do and i cannot tell you why it popped into my head yet again well the 70s very much had a preponderance for a novelty record and every decade has them but the 70s seems particularly egregious for for such behavior the one that stuck in my head was Combine Harvester by the Wurzels. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. <laughs> Just shite. It is shite. Uh, so, no, you have you heard it recently? As as you have you have my, you? My been... my only explanation really is that I think I heard someone say I've got a brand new, and instantly my brain filled in the <laughs> gap with Combine Harvester, and then it was there. <laughs> I mean, that's a tenuous thing, but, you know, we've seen very recently how your mind works on very tenuous links, so, you know. Indeed. (laughs) What about yourself? So, yeah, mine is a lot less tenuous. (laughs) The shite stuck in my head is We Like to Party, are better known as The Venger Bus is Coming by The Venger Boys. Oh, dear me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, talk about novelty songs. Fucking hell. Utterly, utterly dreadful. <laughs> would you like to know why that's stuck in my head? Um, yes, I would like to know why it's, why it's stuck in your head. Okay, so so 
uh, the week we are recording this, uh, the latest scandal to uh, embroil politics in the UK relates to the after work or otherwise activities of our Prime Minister and those working uh, in Downing Street. And someone on YouTube Music has created a public playlist of the perfect songs for you to play at your next work event, including We Like to Party by the Finger Boys. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why it's stuck in my head. Oh, God. Well, you have just reminded me that um, obviously the Venga Boys had more than one song, which Sam informs me that her sister used used to, with the misheard lyric things, come out with instead of "We're going to Ibiza," Ibiza as they pronounce in the song, um, "We're going to eat pizza." <laughs> I mean, Sam's sister's not the only person that did that, Kev. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> Fair enough. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, they were truly fucking atrocious, the Venga boys. But yeah, as I said, if you're planning a work event, then uh, you could do worse than listen to their music. <laughs> <laughs> and have a suitcase full of ale. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Shall we move on? Yeah, probably best. <laughs> okay, so um, what do you want to give a tip of a hat to? So we've um, very much been tipping our hat to new stuff in the last last few weeks. So this is something that's slightly older, but not massively. So, And it's the first entrance to our playlist of someone we've, well, I mentioned pretty much every part, David Bowie. And the first entry for Bowie will be Song Love is Lost. The Hello Steve Reich mix, which is done by James Murphy of LCD Sound System. So the song itself is taken from the 2015 uh, Next Day album when he came back a bit out of nowhere with this with this album, and mm-hmm. it did it did phenomenally well. And obviously, he was referring back to Berlin period and everything like this. And it's been Bowie's 75th, well, would have been Bowie's 75th birthday on sun, the Sunday just gone. So there's been loads of Bowie stuff knocking about. And I think I was listening to the radio and they played this mix and I'd forgotten all about it. And it just reminded me that it, it's a phenomenal mix. We're big fans of LCD Sound System. It's Bowie. It's ticking all my boxes and it's great. Yeah. So to pull back the curtain slightly, you sent it me in our WhatsApp chat recently and uh I'll just repeat what I said there. I, I love a DFA remix. I'm a git for a remix anyway, to be honest with you. I, I love me some James Murphy, as you said. It's a good song anyway, and it's a fantastic remix with actually a really interesting video too. So it would have been a reasonable choice for Video Killed the Radio Star. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's a it's a really good tune and a welcome addition to our playlist. Indeed. So what are you bringing to the table? Okay, so I'm also going older, but I'm going quite a lot older than that. I'm going back to the late 70s, actually. We're doing electro season, and I wanted to salute one of the other pioneers of electronic music who we've we have mentioned before but who we have uh, certainly yet to do any of his his work on album clash it's Giorgio Moroder and I am giving a tip of the hat to the absolute classic that is I feel love by Donna Summer it is a it's a belter oh I mean it's a I mean belter doesn't even do it justice like we need we need something above belter 
<laughs> exactly. We do. We do. It's it's phenomenal. Pure banger. Yeah, it is pure banger. But also, it is another one of those landmark moments in the history of pop music. It's got one of the most iconic and one of the most sampled riffs of all time. It is a solid gold rammer, and I love it. So that's what I'm calling out. Filthy. It's filthy. It is filthy. Um, there is something else I just want to to, to give a give a shout to. Uh, again, not not a playlist pick, but just something I wanted to um, to mention as we record this. Yesterday, Ronnie Spector, obviously lead singer of the Ronettes, she she very sadly passed away. Uh, and I'd just uh, like to um, give a shout to well to any of the Ronettes stuff. Really, we obviously talked through them on our recent Christmas clash, but. Um, yeah, much missed Ronnie Spector. So um, in tribute to her, go and listen to some of the Ronettes because it's just really fun. Yeah, it's really good pop music. So yeah, go and listen to it because it's dead good. And she's, she has a cracking voice. She did indeed. Uh, okay, but that is Can't Get You Out of My Head. So Top Trumps, I guess. Yeah, it is that time again. It is. And I'm not confident, Kev. Uh, I, I think my run might be broken, you know. Okay, well, we, we shall see. We shall. Okay, so it's still my honour because you haven't won one for a while. I'm going to go with charts. Okay, in the UK, Speak and Spell reached number 10. Number two in the UK. Shite. Uh, Okay, um, in the US, uh, not bad for a debut album, number 192. 100 places better, uh, 92. Shite. (laughs) Okay, so we're (laughs) off to a bad start. You win your pick. Okay, we will go with sales then. Ah, bollocks. Go on. Not a specific figure, but rounding about five million. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm out by a factor of 10, and Speaking Spell did not sell 50 million copies. <laughs> so, yeah, 500,000-ish. <laughs> okay. I think I'll go with awards. Uh-huh. Winner of the 1983 Brit Award for Best Newcomer. Nominated for the 1982 Brit Award for Best Newcomer, but did not win. So I didn't actually realise that the Brits was knocking about by then, because like the oh yeah, it's been around for it's been around for a while. Yeah, the fir- the first time that I was certainly aware of it was the infamous uh, Sam Fox Mick Fleetwood hosted version towards the end of the eighties. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> for for anyone who doesn't know, I think it was 89. Yeah, the Brits were hosted by Mick Fleetwood and Sam Fox, who between them couldn't read the auto cue, nor could they hear what either of the, the other one was saying, <laughs> even though they were stood next to each other. It was chaotic. It's great television. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's on YouTube. Go and check it out. Uh, all right, I'm 3-0 down, so already the best I can do here is a draw, uh, and I ain't very confident about that, so off you go. Go on. So um, I deliberately kept certifications back because I um, I was pretty confident that I had one in my back pocket, so I'm going to go with it, and upstairs at Eric's was platinum both in the UK and the US. Uh, I have no platinums. Gold in UK, Germany, and Sweden. So already I'm defeated, and we only have two more to go. So let's just rattle through those, see how we do. Okay, lists. So the only list that this album makes makes it onto is the Record Mirror's 35th Best Album of the 80s. 
Okay, so um, I do not appear on that list, uh, but in the year 2000, Speak and Spell um, was voted by Virgin as number 991 on its top 1,000 albums of all time list. So I don't know, is that a draw? Do you win that? I'd call that, I'd call that a draw because they've appeared on two, on a list each, really. Two different lists. Yeah, fine. Okay. Fine, a draw. So I'm saved from a whitewash on a technicality. I'll take it. <laughs> okay, and then we finish up with scores. So all music, four out of five. Ditto. Rolling Stone, three out of five. Two and a half. And um, everyone's least favourite uh, publication because of who I, well, I know wrote the review, a B plus uh, in the Village Voice. <laughs> yeah, C plus. In the village voice for speaking spell. So <laughs> you're not a fucking teacher. <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna start calling him the professor, you know. Professor Nobby McKee. <laughs> no, because that's giving that's giving him kudos and gravitas that the man does not deserve. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, indeed. He's not a teacher. He is at best the nursery assistant who cle- who puts the uh, the sand over the over the sick. <laughs> oh, Kevin. That's wrong for so many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, he appears not to have uh, liked either of these two albums, as, of course, we will be finding out a little bit later on in the case of Speak and Spell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right, shall we move on to start talking about Depeche Mode's debut album, Speak and Spell? Yeah, let's do it. Right, okay. So background as always. It was, as we've said, their debut album. It was released on the 5th of October 1981 on Mute Records, recorded at Blackwing Studios in London, produced by Depeche Mode and Daniel Miller, who was one of the founders of Mute Records. So in terms of Depeche Mode and how they came to be, Vince Clark, who then was going by his original name, Vince Martin, in 1977, he and his schoolmate Andy Fletcher They formed a band called No Romance in China. Uh, Vince Clark was on vocals and guitar, and Andy Fletcher was on bass. Andy Fletcher would later say in an interview with Pulse magazine in 1993 that I was actually forced to be in that band. I played the guitar and I had a bass. It was a question of them roping me in. So then in 1980, uh, Andy Fletcher met Martin Gore, and Martin Gore joined the band, which was by then called Composition of Sound. And then in that same year, 1980, vocalist Dave Garn was recruited after the other members. They heard him singing a rendition of David Bowie's Heroes at a jam session in a, this is fabulously low rent, in a local scout hut. <laughs> wow, a Basildon scout hut. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, I should have mentioned these guys are all from Basildon in Essex. So they renamed themselves Depeche Mode after a French fashion magazine. Again, Martin Gore, he said it means hurried fashion or fashion dispatch. I like the sound of that. So uh, as I said earlier, when when they first formed, they were more of a traditional guitar rock music type band, but they fairly quickly evolved into a much more electronically influenced sound. Vince Clark has cited acts like OMD and the Human League as, as his main influences. So, yeah, he told Pop Matters uh, in 2020 that when I first started playing music, 
The band I was in was a traditional guitar, bass and drums setup. And then electronic music happened with those early records, early Human League and orchestral maneuvers in the dark, stuff like that. Really intrigued me. And I just decided it's so much easier and less technical to play synth than it was to play guitar. So that's when I started getting interested in electronic music. It was all practical, really. I was a much better keyboard player than a guitar player. OMD was such a huge influence on me. The reason I got into electronic music was because I heard the track Almost. That's when I thought to myself, oh my God, electronic music actually has some emotion. And I wanted to be a part of that. So before he founded Atomic Kitten, as we've mentioned a long time ago, yeah, Andy McCluskey and OMD uh, were quite um, influential in the very early days of of synth pop, really. The second best band to come out of the Leisure Peninsula. (laughs) (laughs) Are are, are we saying half man, half biscuit are the best? Yes. As as you know, I I, I do do love their stuff. Yeah, fair enough. That's fine. Uh, right, okay, so uh, on a similar note, Dave Garn, he was sort of of the view that using synthesizers was as much about convenience as it was about anything else. So he told Rolling Stone in 1990, I think without knowing it, we started doing something completely different. We'd taken these instruments because they were convenient. You could pick up a synthesizer, put it under your arm and go to a gig. You plugged directly into the PA. You didn't need to go through an amp, so you didn't need to have a van. We used to go to gigs on trains. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean that does make life a lot easier, doesn't it? Although it's a, it's a bit um, harder to to have the traditional rock star lifestyle, inviting people back on the um, the nine fifty back to Basildon. <laughs> I was going to say you have to finish your gigs a lot earlier as well. Sorry, we've got to get the train. <laughs> oh, it's all right. It's delayed. <laughs> we can do another couple of songs. <laughs> last train, last trains. Then I'm, I'm like, I've got to leg it down the road with me, with me, uh, Roland. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got the cog? Don't forget the cog. Fucking hell! If you're carrying a cog, then Jesus, like you must be built like Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Listen, I've just thought of something. Is that why the keytar got invented? Because it's even easier to carry. It's got a strap and everything. <laughs> it must be. Right, anyway, <laughs> so their first gig uh, as Depeche Mode was at the James Hornsby School in Basildon, uh, where Vince Clark, Andy Fletcher and Martin Gore were all students. Apparently there's a plaque at the school commemorating that gig. They produced a demo tape and they took it around various record companies in London in an attempt to get signed. So again, that 1990 interview Rolling Stone, Dave Garn, he said... Vince and I used to go around record companies and demand that they play it. Most of them, of course, would tell us to fuck off. They'd say, leave the tape with us. And we'd say, no, it's our only copy. Then we'd say goodbye and go off somewhere else. This is obviously in the days before home taping was killing music because they didn't even want to pirate their own stuff. (laughs) That's because they didn't have one of they didn't have like a double deck thing. They only had a single deck, so they couldn't they couldn't record anything. So, November of 1980, they were playing a gig at Bridge House in Cannon Town in London, and there they were approached by Daniel Miller, as I said, who was the founder of Mute Records, and they agreed to sign for the label. So, having signed with Mute, their first recorded release was a contribution to the Some Bizarre compilation album with the song Photographic. Uh, Not the same version that ends up on Speak and Spell, that is a, a reworked version. But yeah, that was their first recording. 
Then in February of 81, they released their debut single, Dreaming of Me. It was a reasonable success. It reached number 57 in the UK. It wasn't released as a single in the US, although it is featured on the US release of Speak and Spell. But as always, we are going through the original UK release. So that will be the last mention of Dreaming of Me on today's show. Um, so they followed up Dreaming of Me with uh, New Life in June of 81. That reached number 11 in the UK, so much more successful. And their next single in September of 81 was Just Can't Get Enough. And that reached number eight. So it was their first top 10 hit in the UK. It was released later on in the US, as we'll come on to later on. But that pretty much brings us up to the point at which uh, Speaking Spell was released, unless there's something I've missed that you want to go over? No, I think I think you pretty much nailed it there. Okay, so Kev, how did you first discover Speaking Spell by Depeche Mode? So again, like for Electro Season, it is because of this clash. So I've never listened to this album. I've heard some of the songs off it. So obviously the Behemoth that is the final song on the album, on the UK version. And I, de- I definitely heard New Life and some of the some other ones I've heard from time to time. But I've never, I've never listened to the album. So yeah, it was quite, it was quite the introduction to early 80s uh, electronica for me. Fair enough. So I, I have listened to it before this clash. So my first introduction to Depeche Mode, as I imagine was the case for you as well, and for most people of our generation, was the sort of early 90s. So you're talking around the Violator or Songs of Faith and Devotion period, uh, and particularly the singles from those, you Mm -hmm. know, Personal Jesus, Enjoy the Silence, etc. Some real classics there. And, And again... My brother was big into Depeche Mode at that time, so I was I was hearing them through him. But it was only, I don't know, maybe five years ago when I was on a bit of a um exploration back into, you know, the history of electronic music that uh, I went back and listened to Speak and Spell. So not an album that I am hugely familiar with, but one that I had heard before we did this clash anyway. Okay. Right, should we talk artwork then? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It is an interesting one. Uh, apparently, it's designed by Brian Griffin, the dog from Family Guy. <laughs> so, unsurprisingly, that had come to my to my notice. <laughs> right. So, it's an image of a of a swan or a, a a model of a swan, whatever. For some reason, in a polythene bag, sitting on a nest of ice white twigs floating on some water. <laughs> so, the hive mind strikes again. My verbatim notes are a swan covered in polythene and on some decorative twigs. <laughs> so, I checked out Brian Griffin's uh, website because he has done photography for loads of Depeche Mode stuff and some other albums. So, there's there's one of their later albums that he's done where there's loads of the photographs are in the sort of so- Soviet realist style which are really interesting but in terms of in relation to this he says he says on the when the image for this album comes up it just says i have no idea how i arrived at the concept for this album cover (laughs) so there's two more notes i have said about it firstly the sort of scarlet blood red backdrop i mean it could really be a nick cave album cover let's be honest with you i'm sorry but like the twigs the twigs are far too twee and he, he wouldn't have a he, he wouldn't have a swan like that. I mean, it might be a dismembered swan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> be a vulture on a nest of bones with flesh hanging off them. Yes, that's a perfect Nick Cave album. <laughs> and the other thing is, it is so early 80s, this album cover, that I can practically smell the Vaseline on the camera lens. <laughs> so, very soft focus. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I have I have always been disappointed that the album cover isn't just a speak and spell. <laughs> because that would be, it'd be simple, but it'd be fun. <laughs> well, yeah, if it was like a picture of a speak and spell that just said Depeche Mode on it, then that'd be a boss album cover. Exactly. Job done there, lads. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, anyway, it, it's fine. I, I, it's perhaps not the most... Uh, memorable of the two album covers we're going to be going through. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. All right, okay. Are we ready to start actually going through the tracks from Speak and Spell then? Yeah, let's let's go. Okay, so we start with New Life, which was, as I said earlier, the first single released from the album and their second single overall. It was released on the 13th of June, 81. It reached, as I said, number 11 in the UK. Their first appearance on television was when they performed this song on Top of the Pops on the 25th of June, 1981. And so what I've said is right from the off, it's got a classic Vince Clark riff. It starts off because it's just a riff and it's quite slow. <laughs> I've mind again. Yeah. So one of, one of my first notes is Vince Clark is a master of finding a really simple hook to drag you into a song. That's exactly it, because it starts off with the riff, but play quite slowly. But then the little drum beat kicks in, and it's you know it's it's so catchy, it's so pop. It's so okay. I'm going to try and get my bearings a little bit. It's got the minimalism of Kraftwerk. It's got the poppiness of the Human League, and there's like with one of those little riffs in the sort of chorus, the arpeggiated keyboard riff in the chorus. It's got a huge slice of OMD in there. I I just I really like this. Yeah, as you said, Vince Clark is the master of a simple hook that brings you right into a song right from the off. It's great. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's it's a really exciting exciting opening. It's a good way to open the album. I mean, it's absolutely pure eighties in in its sound. Oh yeah. I mean, like I I made the notes fire up the spectrum. <laughs> uh, but like Dave Dave Garn sounds absolutely amazing he does and it, it it must have sounded like the future when it came out it does make me think of flying cars and living on the moon <laughs> it, it does have that sort of futuristic sound to it because of the synths and everything kev we spoke the other week tomorrow's world is full of shit okay <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's a great album name tomorrow's world is full of shit yes it is a great album name <laughs> All right, so I've got a couple of quotes to read from uh, Dave Garn and Martin Gore, uh, who told the UK magazine Number One. Never heard of magazine Number One, but okay. Martin Gore said, after the successive dreaming of me, we thought that this game wasn't too difficult at all. And Dave said, yeah, we thought we'd make a few more singles quick. The only other thing I've got to say in terms of facts, that it has been covered five times, including quite bizarrely in 1996 by Icelandic indie rockers The Wanna Dies, and it was featured on the You and Me song EP. Wow, <laughs> didn't see that coming. No, exactly. Yes, it's a really good start. It's a really poppy start. Dave Garn sounds great. Yeah, quite like we said about the futurism. And uh, it, I'm going to come back to this theme an awful lot of Vince Clark 
because he writes all but two of the tracks on this album, of him bringing in those influences that I've already spoken of with some more, let's say, classic pop influences mm-hmm. to take, you know, this quite avant-garde stuff. And he wasn't the first, Human League as well. Okay, fair enough. But to take this quite avant-garde stuff going on, combine it with sort of pop classicism and make something which is absolutely catchy, great to dance to, real hits on the club scene and goes straight to the top of the charts as well. It's uh, visionary. Yeah, definitely. All right, shall we move on? Yeah, let's do it. So, Kev, I sometimes wish I was dead. So has ever a song that you've listened to, has the title been more... Incongruous. Yes, it's it's completely incongruous. Yeah, it, it definitely is. It's such a nice, upbeat song. It's really nice driving beats, staccato bass line. It, I like it a lot, and it's got some really good vocal harmonies. And I've actually noted this one sounds quite erasure-like to me, and it's an easy thing to say, again, Vince Clark, but... Yeah, a lot of the riffs here call forward to some of the stuff, particularly that was on Erasure's first couple of albums. Uh, and uh, yeah, considering the title is somewhat shocking, really, uh, the sound of the song is completely anathema to that. Yeah, so I, um, you know, like I felt that it was quite a um, a kind of weird throwback to an elect. It's like an electro '60s sound. It's it, it's very akin to sort of an electro version of early Beatles stuff with the harmonies. And there's a really nice riff that's sort of repeated throughout. And it has a, it has a complexity to it, but yeah, you can see, you can see that um, Vince Clark is, has a, has a huge ground in, in sort of the history of popular music, really. Definitely. And that goes back to what I was just saying about new life. Exactly the same thing. It's those, it's those classic pop tropes if you like but bringing them into the modern era well modern as was obviously in, in 1981 and it just works so well it's uh, again i really like it it's a lot of fun despite the title so you mentioned about a, a, a zx spectrum on new life i really like the way that the uh, the main riff in this appears to have been played on a sega master system <laughs> pure alex kid vibes <laughs> it's massive eight bit isn't it <laughs> It is. <laughs> I, I do. I do really like this song. I think it, there's a nice complexity to the synth work as well throughout the song that doesn't seem that complex initially, but it grows throughout. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the way you've said that. Actually, um, it does grow nicely throughout. And there's, there's a few songs on this album that do that. And I'd say New Life is the same. Starts really simple, but. <sighs> I'm going to draw a really odd comparison here, but we said this about the Chemical Brothers a couple of weeks ago, that elements come in at various points through the song and then other elements go out. And certainly on this track, there's a lot of change in it, but also a lot of constancy in it, which is a bit of an oxymoron, I know. But do you know what I mean? It's There's a similarity there in this structure, I guess, mm-hmm. of the way it's put together. Yeah, there's there's various elements that come in and out, but... There's there's elements that are consistent throughout that give you that base to build and go off from kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, two tracks in, and I've enjoyed them both so far. Yeah, they're they're really good. All right, so we go on to track three, puppets. And the first thing I've said is that so yes, it's still very much in that early eighties synth mold, but I think the tone of this 
Certainly compared to the first two tracks, it's a lot more closely aligned to what Depeche Mode would go on to do in the late 80s and early 90s. There's a real sinister air to this one, I think. Absolutely, without question. So I instantly noted that it the first the first two songs are light in tone. This has a much darker sound. And as you say, it, it has a, a sinister nature to it. Again, it has that simple opening, which then expands uh, sonically on the chorus. And I, I really, I really like how the juxtaposition between the two, where you've got something like the verse, which is a bit more stripped back, and then you get a much more a, a big chorus. And like, yeah, it, it's really good. I really liked it. Yeah, me too. I, I really like this too. And so I think that darkness complements the lyrics because so. I'm just going to read some of the lyrics from the chorus and the bridge. I don't think you understand what I'm trying to say. I'll be your operator, baby. I'm in control. And all the things you tried to do, babe, and all the words we said before, are only part of what I started, baby. And you can't stop me anymore. It's quite a dark theme, that, about, it seems to me to be about coerciveness, about control, about manipulation. And although we sort of laughed at the title of the previous track, if this was as as poppy and as upbeat as I sometimes wish I was dead with those lyrics, you'd probably be asking some questions, I think. <laughs> it's, it's got a, a bitterness to it that doesn't shine through in the first the first two tracks, really. Mm. You know, you can't control me anymore. I'm away from you. I'm Essentially, I'm not your puppet anymore kind of thing. And yeah, it's really, it is really well done. It, it seems weird after the first two, but it works. Yeah, I, I, I sort of know what you mean, and I think that's something that happens a couple of times throughout this album, is that there's some quite stark tonal shifts, so I don't think that's the last time we'll be saying that. Yeah, and I think, I suppose that that speaks to where they go after Vince leaves, and I suppose where yes. where Vince Vince's career kind, kind of goes as well, that he goes in a, in a very different direction uh, musically. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, exactly. Certainly when we come to speak about the Martin Gore written tracks, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I know exactly what you mean there. Last thing I want to say about Puppets is, as much as you said about it's sort of dark and sinister, in the sort of breakdown towards the end, it's pure Harold Fultemeyer Axel F. (laughs) (laughs) And I know this came first. I know this came for like four years before that, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know I know what you mean. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, so, boys say go, Kev. Mm. Oh, dear, not a fan. So, yeah, I don't like the opening chant, and it's pure Essex. <laughs> yeah, it, it properly rubbed me up the wrong way from the start of the song. <laughs> I know what you mean. So, it, it's the boys say go, boys say go. It is proper nails down a chalkboard. And listen... Some people probably listen to us talking with our pseudo-affected Scouse accents and think it sounds fucking horrible. But yeah, that, you know, your support is fucking shit. It's that vibe. Yeah, it properly is. Is this a library? To me, it's screaming uh, a white Escort XR3i. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Does it get more 80s than that? <laughs> no, it doesn't get any more 80s Essex than that. 
Well, I was going to say, does the white XR3i have in it a like windscreen sticker where it goes like blue tinted and it says Kevin and Sharon? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And some furry dice in there. <laughs> And a, and a horn that uh, plays the same tune as the General Lee from um, <laughs> Dukes of Hazard. Possibly. And uh, Sharon has like a red leather jacket, but like with really short arms. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> right. Should we go back to talking about Boys Say Go? Okay. So you don't. So it rubs you up the wrong way to start with. But what do you think about the song? Does it never grab you after that? Has it lost you altogether? Or is it just the start that irritates you? There are elements in it that I can admire. So um, I think the synth work is great and particularly the complexity of it. Again, sonically, it's a really well put together piece of work. I don't think it's just that sort of uh, opening that I I don't particularly enjoy it lyrically. Musically, fine, but lyrically, no. Okay, so I I, I would like to um, give the lyrics some some praise here because I I think this is well a, a gay anthem basically. Now that I know that no one in Depeche Mode uh, was gay, I, I think this is it, well certainly if it's not meant as a gay anthem, it's clear that it can have been adopted as one. You know, boys meet boys get together, boys meet boys, it's forever. Don't say no, boys say go. I, uh, you know, and, and the electropop scene in the early 80s had a massive gay following as well. So, you know, fair play to them if that's what it is. But I really like, I think this is great. It's got a great stomp along beat. It's got, as you said, some great Vince Clark synth licks in there. Again, the elements coming in and out all the way through. It's, there's a, there's a simple complexity to it. I don't know if that makes any sense. It doesn't, but there you go. And the chorus is catchy as hell. Boys meet, boys get together. Don't say no. Boys say go. I, I really like it. I'm really surprised this wasn't a single, actually. I think mm. it's it's got that really catchy pop anthem aesthetic to it. No, fair enough. And, you know, the, the this is this is ground again that Bowie had, had already tread uh, with something like boys keep swinging or you know so it, I, I don't know I, like it just it, it didn't it didn't grab me oh no okay fine I, I i can understand where you're coming from there but but i don't agree just the last thing i do want to say sampled once this track by no one uh, particularly uh well known so it was sampled by the german techno act negro sex on their 1991 song Droga. so Firstly, Negrosex, great name. Technola Droga, great name. And, although that bears no significance on anything whatsoever, I just wanted to say, I listened to that tune, it's a fucking belter. It is an absolute <laughs> early 90s techno rammer. Pure KLF. It's great. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's that's quite the, um, the left turn that I didn't expect, but yeah, I'll have to check it out. <laughs> Listen, Kev, I told you we could have done an entire series on German electro music through the ages, <laughs> and I wasn't lying. Uh, right, okay. No, I, I like Boys Say Go, but um, I, I, I can understand why you don't, because, yeah, that, that bit at the start, it is a bit grating, but, but anyway. Uh, on to No Disco? Yeah, let's do. 
All right, so yeah, No Disco is the next track. This is, incidentally, another one that has been covered by The Wanna Dies and featured on the You and Me Song EP. So The Wanna Dies, big Depeche Mode fans, it would seem. There you go. Well, didn't hear that in their sound. <laughs> no, not at all. All right, so talked about the Human League influence on Vince Clark. I think the way Dave Garn sings this, there's a huge Phil Oakey inflection in his voice. Mm-hmm. Or oh, is that just me? No, I can I can definitely hear. Like I I noted down that this has human league elements to it. And and again, I can hear craft work. I think I think the synth parts throughout it have got a real Teutonic feel to them. You know, even for a song on this album, the music composition seems very stripped back. It seems very man machine to me. Yeah, it's again, it's got a it's got quite a dark vibe to it. It's an intriguing kind of riff that opens the song, and then you get the, I don't know, I suppose like the bass and come in. It's 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 a great start to the song. Like I really like this, and again, it's got a bit of edge to it, and I like that about it. Yeah, me too. It has got an edginess, but but even with that, it's it's still got a catchy melody. It's still got an incessant beat, and so there is still that sort of conventional pop ethos to it that means it fits within the album. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, in terms of song craft and album craft, I I think that's, that's, that's really quite impressive to me. Yeah, to have something that doesn't necessarily make you feel instantly comfortable, but it still has a a pop sensibility to it. It's, it's a hell of a a tightrope act that, and fair play to Vince Clark, because, and we'll talk about this next week is he absolutely nails that so often. It does indeed. Although, perhaps not so much on the next track. What's your name? So, in a 1995 interview with uh, Simon Amstel for Channel 4's Pop World, both Martin Gore and Andy Fletcher cited What's Your Name as the worst Depeche Mode song of all time. And I can see why. To me, this is cloying and sugary. It's insidiously superficial. Hmm. I I don't like this at all. So, I don't necessarily agree with you. It's got a much more traditional sound to it. And again, the harmonies and the backing vocals and stuff, it does have that much more sort of early 60s kind of pop sensibility to it. It's not my favourite song on the album, but I do think it works. So, and that's what I hate about it, is that early 60s sensibility. So there's there's two parts in this song that make my skin crawl. So the the backing vocals in the second verse, hey, hey, what's your name? And then towards the end, P-R-E-T-T-Y. It's too much. It's too bubblegum pop. Just no, sorry, it doesn't. I don't think this fits at all on this album. I think it's completely out of place. And then in the final verse, there's some fake electronic clapping noises, which are just the final wretch-inducing straw. I I had a visceral dislike of this. Always have. It's too much. So is it a bit too, um, like, uh, sugar, sugar, that sort of bubblegum pop for you? 100% like that, yeah. And the Shangri-La's Leader of the Pack, a song which I've never liked. It, it reminds me of that. I just, uh, yeah, bubblegum pop. It's exactly, yeah, it's too much of it. It's too laying it on thick. 
you know, I, I like a bit of syrup on my crumpets, but I don't want an entire fucking tin of it poured down my throat. Do you know what I mean? And that's what this feels like. <laughs> Wait there, so if I just sum up your, as you know, I like to kind of bring your analogies to a pithy end. Are you essentially saying that this song is like being waterboarded by a golden syrup treacle? No, it's like being waterboarded by Willy fucking Wonka. <laughs> Poor Augustus Gleep. <laughs> the fucking Umpa Lumpers holding the towel over my fucking face. <laughs> oh, we're now literally making jokes about torture. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to leave them in the show as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're bad people. Um, no, I don't like this. It doesn't fit. It's too much. So, yeah. Okay, let's move on from that silliness. The next track is Photographic. So this, as I said earlier, this was originally included on the Some Bizarre Records compilation album, but not this version. This was a reworked version from that original. And uh, I like this. This is much more like it. It's got a bit more of that menacing foreboding to it, but still really poppy. Well, actually, actually, so I say still really poppy. Yes, I get huge ABBA vibes from the opening. It's fucking Mamma Mia. I've that old manic minor. <laughs> yeah. As, as you said, like it's it's got a properly urgent opening to this second half of the album, and yeah, the really sleazy vocals combined with the music give you that kind of. Again, we talked about it when when we did The Idiot and we talked about it on, on other songs, it gives you that kind of uncomfortable feeling of potential danger. There's something not right here and it might kick off and I've got to be, I've got to have my wits about me. Well, there's the, I think this sounds more than a little stalkery mm, yeah. actually in that, in the lyrics. You know, I'm just going to, a white house, a white room, the programme of today, lights on, switch on, your eyes are far away, the map represents you and the tape is your voice. Follow all along you till you recognise the choice. I take pictures, photographic pictures. That's really dark. It's like I am watching you. You know, I am I am tracking you. I'm watching you. I. So yes, there's that sense of danger, but I think the protagonist, the narrator of this song is the one who is... Mm-hmm. creating that danger rather than the one who is in danger yeah yeah definitely the <laughs> is the sting of the um of the song yeah yeah well uh, so i like the way it it it's a bit frenzied it starts off quite frenzied with that ABBA baseline, but it becomes more and more so as the song goes on. Um, <laughs> I've said here, I can actually see it soundtracking a chase scene in a stylish 80s cop show starring <laughs> Don Johnson. All that amazing pilot that um, we've both seen footage of recently of the detective drama with Joe Pesci where he's based in uh, Hollywood <laughs> and has Dean Martin in it, and it looks dreadful and amazing at the same time. Exactly. It looks incredible. <laughs> and I cannot believe they never made the show. <laughs> um, anything else to say about photographic? No. Okay, shall we move on to Tora, Tora, Tora? Indeed. 
So this is one of only two songs written by Martin Gore on the album. And it's, as you will know if you've listened to the song, or seen the uh, 1970 film of the same name, it's about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1940. Um, So Tora was the code word that they used to indicate that the attack had been successful, basically. And, as I say, the title is taken directly from that 1970 film. So I've said here, you can tell right from the off it's not written by Vince Clark. First, there's the sound of it, which, even more so than photographic, is really dark and foreboding and, and all that stuff. But also, the lyrics are much more direct, much less abstract than every song you've listened to so far. You know, from the skies, you could almost hear them cry, Torah, Torah, Torah. In the town, they were going down, Torah, Torah, Torah. What do you think? So I didn't really like it. It didn't have a hook for, for me. The maybe, maybe if I was a bit more au fait with the, with the music, then I might have seen more in it. But what you've had before is some really upfront, clear hooks that grab you straight away and pull you into the song. And some of the songs after this, definitely the last one, I didn't get that from from this. There's a lot going on sonically. Like again, it's there's there's something to be said for them for it as a piece. But yeah, it didn't didn't grab me. Hmm. So I agree that's not got a hook in it. And that probably means it's unlike every other song on the album. So that's a fair point. But I like it. I'm a in fact I really like it. I'm a really big fan of this. So again, a massive, massive craftwork influence on this that I can hear. That robotic riff throughout it could have been lifted off anything off Man Machine. I think there's a real discordancy to each of the elements here and the way they're put together. I think it's deliberately unsettling. I think there's deliberately no hook to it. And I think I can see that you may go, well... Yeah, but that means it doesn't sit within the rest of the album. And there's a conversation to be had there. We had a similar conversation, albeit for different reasons, about Setting Sun the other week. You know, Mm -hmm. does this song fit on this album? Perhaps not, but I really like it. I think Dave Garn sounds great on this, actually. I think the way he sings it, he's, to me, crying out in alarm and in anguish. I like it but I can understand how your response to it was more negative. Yeah. Okay, I've got nothing else to say about it, though. We are going through these tracks quite quickly, but um, there's not a huge amount in the way of uh, of quotes or, or, or facts or anything, so, you know, I'm just... That's why we're racing through quickly, but, uh, yeah. Shall we go on to Big Muff? <laughs> yes. So, Big Muff, it's the second one written by Martin Gore. It's the only fully instrumental track on the album, so no vocals on this at all. What do you think of this? It's a perfectly enjoyable instrumental. It maybe goes on a little bit, but yeah, like I, I enjoy, I enjoyed enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, I, I don't really have a huge amount to say about it, to be honest. Nor do I. Uh, and I've said the same, I've made the same note about the time. I mean, it's it's only 4 minutes 21, but it's quite repetitive within that 4 minutes 21, and I think they could easily shave a minute off it and lose nothing from the track. That said, I do quite like it. I think there's, it's almost like, and I'm trying to, trying to call out things that we've been through quite recently here, it's almost like a cross between 
Comet and Melody 2, Popcorn and Oxygen Part 4 in the way it sounds and the way it's put together. And I do not mean that as a criticism, by the way. I just can, mm-hmm. I can hear some of those influences in it. Yeah, I quite like it. It's a perfectly, as you said, it's a perfectly enjoyable instrumental track, but is in no way remarkable. Yeah, I think I think you've fairly summed it up there. All right, we then go on to the penultimate track, track 10. Any second now, open parentheses, voices, close parentheses. This is the only track on the album where the lead vocal is sung by Martin Gore. He didn't write it. It was a Vince Clark written song. The B-side to Just Can't Get Enough was an instrumental version of the song just called Any Second Now, without the voices part on it. I think this is great. Beautifully haunting, hauntingly beautiful, beautiful and haunting. You you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I love this. I think it's really, really good. It's a really nice change of pace. It's a simple song, but it has a beautiful simplicity to it. It's really well performed. It, it's great. Like, I really, really enjoyed this. I thought it was a lovely piece mm-hmm. of music. I, I, so of the songs on this album that I wasn't aware of, this is definitely one that I returned to a couple of times because I did really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I can see why, because it is, it stands out. It, you know, it, really minimalist and simplistic, as you said, beautifully simplistic, no drums, just the synths and the voice. To me, in terms of what it's about, it seems to be about the end of a relationship. Such a small affair, a relapse, someone closing like the nightclub door. Here again, and when you speak, I watch you move away and seem so sure. So I really like the imagery of, you know, closing like the nightclub door. Mm -hmm. That's a really good lyric. I think, yeah, that melancholy comes through in the sound. But also, can I just say how much... Does Martin Gore sound like Alison Moyet on this? Yeah, you can you can definitely pick up stuff that Vince does with with Yazoo in this track. Oh, definitely. My only criticism of this is I think it's a bit too short. I'd be more than happy for another thirty seconds minute of this. To be honest, no, I definitely understand that. Like, it's not a song that I was desperate to end. I'll put it that way. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, but end it did gorgeous though it is. And from there, we go to the final track of the album, and it's one that you may be familiar with. (laughs) It's Just Can't Get Enough. I mean, we've talked about albums finishing strong. This is a strong finisher. (sighs) Fucking hell, is it ever? All right, facts. So, it's the third single, as I said earlier. It was released in September 81, 7th of September 81 in the UK, uh, the 18th of February 82 in the US, As I said earlier, it reached number 8 in the UK. It reached number 26 on the Billboard Hot Dance Club Play chart in the US. And it reached number 4 in Australia. And it's a classic. Well, I've I've said here, it's relentlessly joyous. My notes were banger, great hook, pure pop perfection. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's one of the most earwormy things you will ever hear that riff. It just God, it It's got a great beat, so again it's a brilliant dance floor track. It's a great pop tune because it's easy to sing and it stays in your head forever. Every few bars there's another little lick that comes in on Vince Clark's synth, or Martin Gore's synth to be fair, and everything 
comes together in a complimentary way. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect pop song. It's a phrase we are now using in pretty much every show, but it, this is a perfect pop song. It's a perfectly crafted piece of synth pop. Yeah. And I'm actually amazed that it only got to number eight. I know, like that that seems wild to me that it only got to number eight because that chorus is so infectious. It's so earwormy. Like, so we we always listen to these albums a few times in order to like sort of really get an idea of what we're reviewing and stuff. And I've had just can't get like I could have easily had that as my can't get you out of my head because it has been solidly lodged at various points during the day in my head. And I've just been sort of hum- like doing the dishes, humming along to it and stuff like that. Yep. Ditto all through the week for me. Exactly that. For me, the, the lyrics as well, I think. And again, you talk about classic pop songs, stuff like Teenage Kicks comes to mind. This perfectly captures teenage sensation and feeling of being in love you know the, the way your heart just sort of skips along when you're in a new relationship as a kid and when it rains you're shining down for me just like a rainbow you know you set me free you're like an angel you give me your love i just can't seem to get enough of you it's yeah i can't relentlessly joyous is the term i used earlier and i can't think of a better one because it is no you've absolutely nailed it if I had to give this a criticism, and it is a very, very minor one, is the little synthesized brass part that comes in at the end of the middle eight is very cheesy. That is a really, really minor gripe. Really minor, but it's always slightly irritated me. Unfortunately, like you are dealing with. So, firstly, obviously, it's their debut album, so it's mute records as well. So you're not getting a proper brass section in to do to do that bit, and it's also the '80s as well. So you know, synthesized trumpets are are a thing throughout this decade. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm prepared to forgive, like, as someone who loves the brass, I am prepared to forgive it because it's such a belter. Yeah, as am I. And with that, I suggest we go on to some reviews. <laughs> yeah. All right, so most people spoke really highly of this album when it was released. Um, so, some reviews. Writing for The Enemy, Paul Morley. He described the album as generous, silly, susceptible, electro-tickled pop that despite its relentless friskiness and unprincipled cheerfulness is encouraging, not exasperating. Depeche Mode apparently could quickly move far up and away from constructing slightly sarcastic jingles. I mean, as well as being pretty much spot on, it's also remarkably prescient from Paul Morley. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, this was when he was writing contemporaneously as opposed to professionally remembering things. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, not enough Smith's quotes for it to be a uh, retrospective. Uh, so, for the Record Mirror, written by someone named only Sunni, uh, so the Record Mirror review said the album offers much to admire and little to disappoint. The band's chief skill lies in making their art sound artless. Simple synthesizer melodies, Garn's tuneful but undramatic singing, and a matter-of-fact gimmick-free production all help achieve this unforced effect. The album is a charming, cheeky collection of compulsive dance tunes. 
I can't argue with anything she's written there. No, that's good. Okay, so it's not just Nobby that wasn't a fan of this album, however. David Frick in The Rolling Stone, about whom we have spoken very positively in the past. So he wrote, well, as part of a review that also looked at OMD's Architecture and Morality and uh, the album Non-Stop Erotic Cabaret by Soft Cell. He said, compared to Soft Cell's smutty pop, Depeche Mode's speak and spell is strictly PG-related fluff. A group of fresh-faced suburban lads from Britain, they have neither the ambition of OMD nor the over-commercial allure of the Human League. They simply drift aimlessly between the two, occasionally hitting a disco bullseye with chirpy dance tracks like Dreaming of Me, again, that wasn't on the UK release, and Just Can't Get Enough. Too often the synthesizers lock into dead-end grooves, and the group's boyish caroling is anonymous at best. For all their undeniable pop attractions and the genuine innovative potential of electro-dominated rock, these bands so far have only bent the rules, not broken them. If this batch of records is any indication, the revolution will not be synthesised. So I wanted to read that because I think, again, that speaks to the snobbishness of traditional rock critics. So I think it's it's really unfair as well to compare, whilst they, they're in the same genre, to compare this to non-stop erotic cabaret and saying this is the PG version. That's because non-stop erotic cabaret is it's Mark Almond and he he does not hold hold anything back on that album. <laughs> so yeah, the it's unfair to compare to compare the two for that reason. And they they have different sensibilities as well. The you know Mark Almond yep. unashamedly you know, was showing off his northern soul roots. You know, their their most famous song is a is a cover of a northern soul banger. So comparing this to to that is yes, they both use synthesizers, but like, you know, that's that's comparing, you know, A C D C to Led Zeppelin. Yeah, it's it yeah, so comparing A C D C to Led Zeppelin, yes, they both use guitars, but they both they use them in different ways and create different sonic soundscapes. That's what those two <laughs> bands do as well. So it's it's slightly lazy to lump them all together. Exactly. And that's the thing, and I don't know if it was an editorial decision or if it was something David Frick decided himself to review those three albums all in one go, but yeah, it's exactly that. It's quite lazy. It seem it comes off as quite dismissive and quite snobbish. And given what we read out a couple of weeks ago about what David Frick said about Dig Your Own Hole fifteen years later, I I guess he changed his mind at some point and realised that Electronica was the way forward. Yeah, clearly he developed his taste by then. Maybe this is, you know, the obviously there was particular movements in America. So, like, you think of something like the Disco Sucks movement, where, and I'm not saying that David, David Frick was part of that, but, like, kicking against something that's slightly different, that's slightly unusual, and you're not, you don't quite get it yet. I, I think you're absolutely right there. And with that, shall we um, move on to someone who has never quite got it? (laughs) Yeah, we'll use all the words whilst trying to describe not getting it. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Okay, so what did Robert Criscow say? To be fair to Nobby, he actually speaks about the music for once a bit. (laughs) All right, so he said again, so it was for the Village Voice, as we mentioned earlier. 
New Life is worthy of Eno at his most rhapsodically techno-pastoral, but most of this tuneful pap crosses Miko without the humble functionalism, Gary Newman without the devotion to surface, and Kraftwerk without the humour. Oh, definitely without the humour. You'd think that after 75 years, people would have seen through the futurist fallacy, and infatuation with machinery is the ultimate one-sided love affair. But then, this isn't futurism, they call it pop. So yes, he speaks about the music, briefly, but only in a way that makes it clear that he is much cleverer than any of us mere mortals. Fuck off. Oh, well, he's he's managed to make a reference to futurism, so he, he knows his stuff. <laughs> Look, we can go from a reference to Soviet re- realism to talking uh, about torture to, to, <laughs> to talking about 80s food. It's not hard to to wear your cultural um, influences on your sleeve. Exactly. But it is hard, apparently, to review an album uh, without talking about oneself. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, any more reviews that you want to read? Or should we move on to Legacy? No, let's move on to Legacy. Okay. So, in November of 1981, just one month after this album came out, Vince Clark publicly announced that he was leaving Depeche Mode. Uh, So he explained his decision in an interview with Smash Hits in January of 1982, where he said, I never expected the band to be this successful. I didn't feel happy or contented or fulfilled. And that's why I left. All the things that come with success had suddenly become more important than the music. We used to get letters from fans saying, I really like your songs. Then we got letters saying, where did you buy your trousers from? Where do you go from there? There was never enough time to do anything, not with all the interviews and photo sessions. There was also suggestions that Vince Clark had become sick of touring, but Dave Garn didn't really believe that. So going back to that Rolling Stone interview in 1990, he said in that, that's what he said, but I think it's a load of bullshit, to be quite honest with you. I think he'd just taken it as far as he could. We were very successful. We were in every pop magazine. We were on the TV shows. Everything was going right for Depeche Mode. Everybody wanted to know about Depeche Mode. I think Vince suddenly lost interest in it, and he started getting letters from fans asking what kind of socks he wore. Well, hang on. Was it about what socks he wore or where he gets his trousers from? (laughs) Well, clearly Depeche Mode fans were fascinated in what Vince Clark was wearing below the waist. Possibly they had a big pants chat with him. (laughs) I mean, it would definitely have involved stonewashed denim. (laughs) It was the early 80s and it was synth pop. So, you know, stonewashed denim was definitely a big thing. Yeah. And I wonder what his trainee game was. Like whether whether he was banging to the Adidas or whether he was an early adopter of Nikes. High-tech silver shadow, mate. (laughs) Dunlop Greens. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, moving on from uh, trainer's chat. <laughs> so, in terms of Vince Clark, obviously, we'll talk about what happened to Vince Clark next, next week. So, let's focus for now on what happened to Depeche Mode. And, to be honest with you, they became one of the biggest bands in the world. So, Vince Clark was replaced by Alan Wilder, and Martin Gore took over as the lead songwriter for the band. Their follow-up single, See You, released in January of 82, 
uh, reached number six in the UK and was their highest charting single to date. The second album, A Broken Frame, was released in September of 82. And it wasn't as successful as Speak and Spell, but it still was certified gold in the UK and was a top 10 album. By 84, when they released their fourth album, Some Great Reward, that's when they started to get more international success. So the single People Are People was a massive success in Europe. It got to number two in Ireland and Poland. Also number one in West Germany because it was used by West German TV as the theme tune for their coverage of 1984 Olympic Games. So Ireland and Poland were bang into it. So clearly um, capturing some of the Catholic market. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I've got nothing to add to that, to be honest with you. So around this time, they started to get a bit more traction in the US, particularly on alternative rock stations and on college radio, where their records started being played more and more. But it was in 1990 when they released Violator. That was the album that turned them into global superstars, really. So the sound had evolved massively from Speak and Spell. It was much darker, as we've mentioned when we were going through the tracks, but there was a lot more use of distortion, a lot more use of traditional instrumentation, guitar, bass, dr- even drums by this point. But it still, I would say, had a electronic sound at its core by this time. It, it kind of it developed into a stadium sound by by that point. Yes, but that's, in this case, not something which... Well, I don't think that's a criticism, and I don't think you meant it as a criticism either. No, no, it's it's just to sort of indicate the evolution of the breadth of the sound, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love Violator. I think it's a fucking brilliant album. So the two main singles from there, Personal Jesus was their first top 40 hit in the US. It's an absolute rammer, Personal Jesus. It's a great song. The follow-up, Enjoy the Silence, that got to number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. And the album, Violatus, it was certified three times platinum in the US, and it sold over seven and a half million copies worldwide. The subsequent world tour, as he said, it was very much a stadium tour. It included sold-out gigs at Giant Stadium and Dodgers Stadium in LA. The world tour was watched by an estimated 1.2 million people. So... At this time, it's Depeche Mode and U2. They're the biggest bands in the world at this time. Yeah, without question. Although Jar is uh, mocking their puny 1.2 million people attending their entire entire tours. Like, I've had 3 million people in one gig. <laughs> yeah, but I bet Dave Garn loved to chow down on some fajitas. So, you know, who's the real winner? <laughs> Look, he eventually went back to eating burritos. It's just like he just couldn't think about them for a while. (laughs) (laughs) If you have no idea what we're talking about... Go and listen to the Oxygen episode. Yeah. Or just look at our Twitter feed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in 93, they released Songs of Faith and Devotion. Another massive success. Really good album. However, the subsequent tour on this occasion was dogged with problems. So I'm going to read a couple of things uh, from various publications about how that tour went. So Q Magazine described the tour as the most debauched rock and roll tour ever. 
And the Independent claimed that a smack-blasted, that's their quote, not mine, a smack-blasted Dave Garn required cortisone shots just to perform. Borderline alcoholic Gore suffered two stress-induced seizures and Andrew Fletcher's deepening depression resulted in the summer of 1994 in a full nervous breakdown. So Andrew Fletcher, he left the second half of the tour due to his mental ill health and was replaced for the rest of the tour by Daryl Beaumont. In June 95, Alan Wilder, who had replaced Vince Clark, he left the band, he said... Since joining in 1982, I've continually striven to give total energy, enthusiasm and commitment to the furthering of the group's success. And in spite of a consistent imbalance in the distribution of the workload, willingly offered this. Unfortunately, within the group, this level of input never received the respect and acknowledgement that it warrants. I mean, that's fairly unequivocally a fuck you to Martin Gore and Dave Garn, I would suggest. Yeah, he's not really hidden that very much. No. <laughs> okay, so coming to the end. Uh, Dave Garn, he got himself clean. Uh, the band is still together. To date, they have released 14 albums, most recently 2017's Spirit. They've sold over 100 million records and have played to over 30 million people worldwide. In January of 2020, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At their induction, uh, so it was it was during COVID, obviously, so it was a virtual ceremony. One of the people that inducted them in was uh, Arcade Fire's Wim Butler. And he said of Depeche Mode, I feel like their music still sounds like it could come out 20 years from now. Depeche Mode were able to take that spirit and spread it, which is really a kind of a sacred responsibility. Fair enough. Wynne Butler is someone whom we both have a great deal of respect for. Yeah, you know, and without question, the, their their success certainly advanced the um, sound and the um, popularity of, of electronic music. Yeah. Uh, okay, so just bringing things to a conclusion then. So I'm just going to list briefly some of the artists who have cited directly cited Depeche Mode uh, as an influence on their work. So, Arcade Fire, as I just mentioned. The Killers. Nine Inch Nails. But yeah, obviously. Churches, again, obviously. Smashing Pumpkins. Muse. Ramstein. Linkin Park. LaRue. And here's where it gets bizarre. No Doubt. Hmm? Coldplay. Uh-huh. ZZ Top and Shakira. Okay, I didn't see that last one coming. No! <laughs> the last two, really. Yeah. Uh, so, despite that, I would argue that none of that is the legacy of this album. It's the legacy of the band Depeche Mode became. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It's not the legacy of the band Depeche Mode were at this time. No. They were a very different group by the time Violator came out to what they were in 81. No, without without question that they they had a different sound, a different aesthetic. All of it's very different that this may be part of their of their legacy, but they are a different band. It's it's akin to whilst there is a lineage between boy era U2 and the, the pop album U2, there is a lineage between the two, but they are both very different bands. 
Definitely. I agree entirely with that. I think that's really well put. And so, yeah, I think the real legacy of Speak and Spell is everything we're going to talk about next week, to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay. With that then, what's your best song? What's your worst song? So it probably won't come as a um, galloping surprise what my least favourite song is. Whilst I didn't particularly like the chanting in Boisego, the stuff in there that I like musically, uh, Tora, 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 it just, it again, I can see that there's a complexity to it and everything like that, but it never, never got me. So that's my worst song. The best song on the album, there's some really good stuff, other stuff on here, but there's a behemoth that you can't ignore and it is just can't get enough because it is a absolute stone cold classic. And whilst it may be Johnny obvious, it is the best song on the album. Okay. So I'm going to go best song first, and I agree. Yes, it's Johnny Obvious, but that's because it is the best song on the album. It just can't get enough. Is an incredibly accomplished pop song. I would like to give shouts out to both Photographic and Any Second Now, because to me they are both standouts, mm-hmm. but they ain't it. Just can't get enough. It's a, it's a behemoth. It's great. So there you go. My worst song, again, this is quick. It's What's Your Name? It won't be any surprise to anyone listening to this. I found it cloying and irritating. I don't like it at all. So that's easily my worst song on the album. Okay. All right. So uh, I think that about wraps it up for today. Other than Kev, how is it that people might keep across what we are doing on the socials? The now celebrity endorsed socials. Well, we'll come to that. So, uh, you may enjoy playing uh, word games on your phone. But if you do, please don't put your fucking guesses for Wordle on Twitter. Honestly, like nobody gives a shit how many times, how many attempts you had to guess at it. No one cares. So just stop. But if you are on Twitter, you may want to check out our content at Clash Album. There is definitely no fucking Wordle stuff on there. Um <laughs> If you like carefully curated content, which is uh, endorsed by Fatboy Slim himself, Indeed. you can go to our Insta at Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school, you can go to our email and send us an abusive email or sign him up for some deviant uh, website at albumclash at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah, on the Wordle stuff, firstly... Fuck off. So many people whom I greatly respect that I follow on Twitter posting Wordle school. Don't give a shit. Fuck off. Great. Well done. <laughs> so does that. You don't see me boasting about um, me lemon score, like how many lemons I saved, but like, you know, I, I do that whilst <laughs> I'm on the phone. I'm going to start posting snippets from my championship manager games. Yes, I still play champ manager. <laughs> Fuck off. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> um, and then secondly, yes, genuinely, the actual Fatboy Slim commented on one of Sam's fantastic Insta posts. So genuinely, thank you. I mean, if you're listening, he's not listening. <laughs> but, you know, it's nice to have some celebrity cachet to, to use. And believe us, we are going to fucking milk that for all it's worth. <laughs> I mean, like, it's literally the only endorsement that we've had. So, like, yeah, there, there may be fat boy references for a good few weeks to come. <laughs> Uh, but yeah thanks very much for listening guys as I always say 
stay in touch with us. Uh, it's really great to see people engaging, whether you're uh, internationally renowned recording stars and superstar DJs or not. It's great to see people getting involved with what we're doing. Keep listening. Subscribe. Leave a rating. Leave a review. Tell people about it. The first rule of Album Clash is you do talk about Album Clash. <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, just remind people, Kevin, what it is that you are going to be taking us through next week in the second part of this clash. So next week, I will be taking us through Upstairs at Eric's by Yazoo. Great stuff. Until then, however, thank you very much for listening, everyone. I have, as usually, pretended to be Tim. I have once been Kev, and uh, I would also like to personally thank our busy mate, Norman, for listening. Love you, Norm. <laughs> Cheers, Norm. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening, guys, including you, Norm. We will see you next time. Until then, take care now. Till now, bye-bye. Till now, bye